When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape from Cleveland.com. Doug Maurice, Scott Patsko, Ellis Williams, and Jadavion Clowney. He's not here. I guess we didn't ask. Did you guys call Clowney's agent and ask if he wanted to be on? I didn't. Maybe that was a mistake by us. I thought Ellis was on there. Come on, Ellis! All right. Look, I be being the, the younger one on the podcast, I, I I navigate with Instagram DMs, so the agent hasn't gone back to me yet. All right, no okay. call though, no call. Okay, so Ellis is guaranteeing Clowney will join us next week on Gotta Watch the Tape, but for now, we're just gonna break down film and numbers. So what we're gonna do, you guys know he's here. Can you imagine someone like turning on this podcast and being like, "What? They got Clowney?" If you are that Browns fan, please email us and we'll write a story about you because you've been uh, asleep for a week. So, you know, he's a Brown, but I don't know. Do you watch film listener on your own? I mean, maybe you do. People are very sophisticated these days. Maybe you do. But if you do, well, then watch along. You'll enjoy this discussion even more. If you don't, Scott and Ellis, watch it, break it down, look at the numbers, dig into it for you. So that's what we're going to do. Ellis, in the first half, we're going to do a lot of film a lot of breakdown of what exactly Clowney does and how it affects the Browns now. And then in the second half, Scott's going to dig into other things happening, especially on the interior of the defensive line. Sheldon Richardson, not a Brown for now, at least. Some other guys are in there. What's that going to look like in there? Could Clowney even go in there a little bit? We don't know, but we're going to deal not just with Clowney, but sort of like what's happening on the entire defensive line outside of Miles Garrett. And we're going to do that on Gotta Watch the Tape, starting with Clowney, Ellis Williams, dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape. Yep, Doug's exactly right. We're going to talk first, just some numbers, some interesting tidbits on Clowney regarding production, sacks, hurries, injuries. Um, Scott wrote a good piece, numbers piece, comparing Clowney to Olivier Vernon. And I'm sure he'll inject uh, some of those numbers into this conversation. And for listeners, I think that's a good baseline to start at. Like the Browns don't make this move if they aren't either making a sideways play with some upside or just simply improving. And then obviously the upside exists. So with that in mind, let's just touch on, on some clowny numbers before I'll, I'll throw it to you guys. And then, and then we'll get into all the film and the good stuff. So no particular order, but I think it's important. These are the ones in doing my research, the, the, the numbers that really stood out to me. So starting with his sacks, it, it's timetable stuff like this isn't fair, but when you say it out loud, it, it's, it's shock value. So here's the, here's the tidbit. Jadavion Clowney's most recent sack in an NFL game occurred 17 months ago. He has appeared in 11 of 22 games since. Guys, should I keep time, reading or is that scary? The last time, these are my favorite sports stories. The last time Jadavion Clowney had a sack, milk cost 11 cents a gallon. Did you know that? That's how long it's been. So, I mean, I, you know, I'm not 
I'm not trying to throw stones here. I'm just saying milk used to be much cheaper. <laughs> maybe, maybe he'll uh, get a sack this year and, and milk prices will just plummet again. See that coming. <laughs> um, if Clowney comes to Cleveland, not if, now that he is in Cleveland, it is his fourth team in just as many years. So four for four, he had that uh, double dip year with Texans and, and Seattle and then um, the Titans and now here. Just like the teams he's been on, he's the injuries are starting to pile up as well, which then result in surgeries. He's had surgeries procedures on both knees, including microfracture procedure on his right knee. Most recently, a meniscus repair on his left. That cost him his final seven games of last season, plus the Titans playoff loss in Baltimore um, or against Baltimore in Tennessee. He's had multiple hernia injuries as well. He's had back, ankle and elbow problems that aside. And as we're going to get to in the tape, he is a stout, aggressive and destructive run defender. He's graded at over 80 by pro football focus in four of his past five seasons. He does collapse the pocket when healthy. We're going to talk a little bit about what our theorize at least. And I think I'm going to write in depth on this probably next week because the curiosity is starting to flow, but his sack numbers And Daniel, I was just on a call. Daniel Jeremiah had an interesting point about Clowney. He said he's a guy who has – Javon Clowney's career has been defined by disruptiveness, not production. And that's exactly what you see when you watch the tape. But there is one number or or metric that you can pull from that really encapsulates Clowney's – ability to get after the quarterback and it's his, it's his pressures uh, between 2018 and 19 Clowney generated 78 quarterback pressures. Uh, that's just as, that's just as much or around the same as, as Miles Garrett, Joey Bosa, uh, you know, the upper echelon pass rushers in this league. So guys, before we get to the tape um, from his injuries to the lack of sacks to his run defense and the hurries, we just really haven't had a time on got to watch the tape, you know, aside from our big round table, but specifically on got to watch the tape to, unpack Clowney. So what caught your attention there? As someone who is older than his age, I'm 47 and I feel 67. It is interesting to me. He's the same draft class as Aaron Donald. He's the same draft class as Khalil Mack. I don't think people walk around and say like, Aaron Donald and Khalil Mack, they're nearing the end, man. They had a good run. He's the same draft class as Odell Beckham. He's the same draft class as Jarvis Landry and Joel Batonio. These are that draft class in 2014. These guys are veterans, but they are not aging veterans. They are still prime of their career veterans. Year eight, I think, right? But I don't think of him that way. And I think, Ellis, when you run through the injuries, I don't know that anyone's going to dispute the things that you're going to say in your film breakdown and the moments when this guy, I just looked at the first clip you sent already. And it's like, he looks like he shot out of a cannon, but a lot of it is which one are you getting? Because if you are getting overall number one pick to Davion Clowney, it's like, well, that's why he was the number one overall pick because he does look like he shot out of a cannon. But if you're getting, you ran down the litany of injuries. All right. If he's 28, but he plays like he's 33 and you, how often do you see, peak clowny i think that is going to be a thing you know i have friends who cover the titans and there's definitely a vibe there i heard from a few of them of like good luck you know like it just he got 13 million dollars in tennessee last year played half a season 
And I don't think really helped them that much. So fluke, one-off, throw that year away. Okay, I guess you could argue that. You could also argue, man, that was the last time he was on the field. And he didn't really help his team that much. So I do think the injuries are the thing that I that are going to be part of my expectation and evaluation of the Javion Clowney. I'm eager for the other parts of it, but I can't get away from the injury thing. And I think a lot of people listening to this probably are, yeah, I know he's good, but what version of him are the Browns really going to get? So that's where I am. Scott, where are you? Um, I look at Clowney, I guess you, you have a choice to make on, on, on who you're going to put at edge opposite Miles Garrett. You can go like this offseason, you could go with somebody who's younger, who doesn't have the consistent production over X number of years like Clowney had, who's you know like younger and hasn't had the injury history as well. Or you can have someone like Clowney who does have the injury history, but has performed well over, you know, has shown that he can be consistently good for X number of years. Um, and they went obviously with the latter one there with Clowney, although, I mean, they added in tech McKinley, who maybe is that other category in a way, the younger guy who hasn't shown it as much, but, you know, I think it comes down to the fact that they didn't pay him a ton of money and they're taking the risk. And this is the guy you can take that risk on because like I said, he has performed well. Now I wrote, I wrote the story that Ellis mentioned earlier and I compared him to, to Olivier Vernon. And over the last two years, he's basically been that from a production standpoint, if you're just looking at pressures and sacks and games and, you know, the end result. Um, and, and I'll wait a little bit till later to maybe Ellis might get into it, but to talk about the difference that the, maybe a key difference there between Clowney and Vernon. But I view him as somebody that that's probably, that's worth the risk. And I mean, the people in Tennessee, I get fine. They weren't happy with what they got, but I think the Browns are able to take that risk with this season. And they kind of have the backup plan there with McKinley. So, you know, it's a, it's, he's a risk worth taking. That's, that's how I look at him. Yeah. If, if Clowney plays single digit games this year and misses the Browns playoff push or playoff games, then run this back. I was wrong, but, and I understand the, the, injury list piling up it's a lot it's comparable to a guy like Odell Beckham Jr. right but keep in mind Odell played all 16 games in 2019 Javon Clowney games played in 2015 13 games 16 14 games 17 16 games 18 15 games 19 13 games Denzel Ward literally misses four games a year I get the injury history it is piling up but like Scott said he has rope together a, a, a multiple seasons of production while still playing through that, those injuries and being on the field for enough games, more than enough games. Yeah. I like like over under kind of things and like having us before a season predict what we think a player is going to do. Cause I think it's good to set our expectations. I think it's good to help the fans set their expectations. And I will be very curious for us to set some, over-unders on Clowney on this podcast when we get to September to say, well, how many games do you think he'll play? How many pressures do you think he'll have? How many sacks do you think he'll have? How many snaps do you think he'll play? Right. And, and I'll be curious to see where people are. And then because a lot of how you view, I think Clowney's season is going to be what your expectations are going in. Now he might be a pro bowler. And if he's that, and he literally has, 
you know, his best season in six years and everybody's going to be in agreement. If, if it's short of that, whether you think it's a success is how he is going to depend on how you thought of it ahead of time a little bit. I like what Scott's saying. It's a worthwhile risk for sure. But if you're going to be mad, if he doesn't have 11 sacks, then I think there's a pretty decent chance you might end up being mad, right? But he can help the Browns and be a good signing without having 11 sacks and without playing 70 snaps a game. So I'm, I'll be curious to see where people's heads are when we get ready for this thing to start rolling. Yep. I, I completely agree. And be, because of where you start with that expectation, that is going to dictate how you feel about the production. And I'm confident that after this deep dive and we watch this tape, you guys will arrive in the excited area that I am in because this guy on tape just pops. Uh, we've got six plays for y'all three run three pass Doug. I trust you to reel me in here and keep us moving from play to play because we've proven on this podcast that we could go 30 minutes on just one play. And these ones are exciting uh, listeners as I've done in, in the past, I'm going to give you the uh, week of the game and the, the situation so that you can try to watch, uh, you know, on your own. If that's a bad gimmick, please tweet, let us know. But as for now, it's been working. So we're going to keep rolling with that. This first one, all right, is coming in week seven of the 2019 season. Jadavion Van Clowney is playing for the Seahawks uh, week four. And it is a third quarter, early 12 minute left rep. Uh, the Ravens are running. Really, really, it's split zone, and they do this a lot with Lamar Jackson to get him on the outside to either dive with the running back or have Lamar follow a motioning tight end across the screen to get around the outside edge. This play I call the teleport because Jadavion Clowney is one-on-one with Ronnie Stanley, who all-pro left tackle for the Baltimore Ravens, and he just, at a blink of eye, gets right by him. So at the snap, we're going to run it. First, you see the motion coming, and it's a, it's a perfect rep by the Ravens. That motion hits right at the handoff point with Lamar, so it's just messy in there. The defensive linemen, linebackers, they can't get a good read. No one knows where the ball is, but none of it matters because Clowney's a disruptor. He jabs right, gets inside of Stanley, uses a swim move, which we're going to get back to later, gets down the line, on I believe that's Gus Edwards and blows the play up. That's it. We're going to do two more of these, but that is encapsulates exactly what you're getting from Clowney because Olivier Vernon's not doing that. There are uh, five guys in this league capable of blowing a play up like that Two miles Garrett's credit. This is, would even be, you know, just a tough play from him. He doesn't always win with quickness in the way Clowney can it's just it's just such an impressive rep and fitting that it comes against Baltimore. They're all pro left tackle and someone Clowney's going to see twice a year now. I I was like, that's it. That's Ronnie Stanley. That looks like a backup. That's like, like a third string guy in the third preseason or the fourth preseason game who's going to get cut the next day. It's one of those where the get off is so quick, like Clowney's moving toward into the backfield before everybody else is even like sort of taking a step that way. And it's like, he's the backside pursuit, right? That the Ravens aren't even necessarily all that worried about the backside end on a play like this. Cause the runs go into the other side and he's just like, he murders the play before it has a chance to get started. It is a rare explosion and quickness. And I'm not going to throw this caveat in 
every single time because I'm not trying to be a downer here, but it's like, if, right? I mean, if, if that's who's in Cleveland, like that's two years ago, that's another injury away, right? If that's it, look out. Like if that's what, then who, I mean, because there are, that's why he was the number one pick in the draft, right? I mean, that's how many guys in the league at any point in their career could make a play like that. Kind of on one hand. My favorite part of this play is how long Stanley spends looking at Clowney as he goes by. <laughs> He's just, you know, in awe that somebody just shot by him. And, and yeah, I mean, it, to, to see somebody do that on the edge against the Ravens, that's something the Browns don't see very much because we know Miles Garrett does not have his best games against Baltimore, no matter what side he plays on. Um, but yeah, that's impressive. And uh, trying to figure out where this, this play was actually supposed to go. Um, I'm guessing it was always going to go to the right or I guess up the middle, but around the edge, especially around the right edge, which is where Clowney could, find himself playing over right tackle the, the Browns were horrible stopping the run uh, last season they were like 31st in yards allowed or to, like around the right end the year before that it was like 32nd for right tackle and right end so you plug Clowney into into an edge spot and that that changes the dynamic of your run defense right away and that you did pick a run play to start with Ellis that everybody loves to talk about edge rushers and getting to the quarterback but this is a guy whose reputation is a lot of it's built on what he does against the run. Yeah, exactly. And that is really what I think he's going to add most of this team. Like it's not just about setting the edge, which you guys know that is the first step, but it's about that extra layer, the potential disruption and turnover generating. He brings, this is a type of play that swings a game. It's not just a, a loss of one. You know, it is the potential to, to dislodge a football, get a turnover. And that's something that is the upside of, of Clowney. These next two plays sticking with uh, the run run defense. I'm going to I'm going to play them back to back because they're, they're similar yet extremely different and, and telling at the end here. The first one's going to be a week 10 2019 game overtime versus the 49ers. What impresses me about this rep is the sheer destructive nature that Clowney hits the 49ers pulling guard with they're trying to run a trap play the Niners are and this is the type of play that you see defensive linemen make in the first quarter the first series think attack McKinley's first play against the Seahawks uh that year that that this past season actually uh he sacks Russell Wilson and it's a great highlight play it looks great when you, you peel it back, it's like, okay, yeah, it's the first play of the season. Like who couldn't be energized for that? Right. Like not trying to take too much away from him, but the, the difficulty of Clowney having this much left in the tank on an overtime rep when they've already, when the Niners have already crossed midfield is just wild. So we're going to run it. Um, watch for the pulling guard coming across. That's and what clown. Okay. So here's what I, why I love this rep. The first one was just him beating Ronnie Stanley with a move, right? This rep, I see film study. I see play recognition. And when I'm watching this game, it was a combination of Clowney understanding that this is something the Niners have already hit him with, combined with already having studied the tendencies of the opposing left tackle. When he steps 
hit a first way or where he leans before the ball snapped gives you a, a higher probability to guess what the play is. And this isn't a guess by Clowney. He nails this. He again, swims right around the tackle who is ignoring him on purpose. Cause he's going to get hit by a pulling guard and Clowney just blows the guard up. There's no hole. The fullback tries to go through it. He has to pinch because the hole is getting blown by Clowney. Clowney pushes the guard right into the 49ers running back. And he tackles a running back and a guard at the same time for no gain. The next play very quickly is more in here just kind of for a laugh. It's a similar play. Clowney's uh, on the other end this time, and it's against the Atlanta Falcons. I don't have the week for this one, but viewers, if you just go to Clowney's pro football reference in 2019 season and find the Atlanta game, uh, this was a another late third quarter rep. This is Austin Hooper, Brown's tight end, coming across the formation for a wham block. Uh, they're just running a, a quick inside hitter here. And Hooper just decides to not block Clowney. Like this isn't a miss. This is a, I am deciding I'm going to try to make it look like I tried to block him. But if I come down the line and try and collide with him here, I might become concussed and have to sit the rest of the game out and perhaps next week. So, Hey, that- Hey, 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 he got paid, man. The Browns right. paid him smart move by Austin Hooper. Tip I'm not knocking it. My friend. He could have torn his labrum trying to make this block. The heck with that. I got 10 million bucks a year waiting for me. He sticks out his arm figuring I could do without my right arm. Like I'll throw that out there and maybe, you know, he'll just bite it off. But yeah, he just did not seem uh, in a hurry to square up and try to try to stop Clowney as he went screaming by. It's vicious. It is. There is a lot. There's a lot of violence in this play. Um, and there's a lot of like that. And that's more in the run game, right? That, that He's so violent in that hit. That's a 300 pound guard, Mike person that he's hitting there. When I first watched the clip, I got confused on who it was. I thought it was the fullback because right. the fullback's also coming through because Clowney hits him, stops the guard and then pushes him backwards and like pushes him backwards into the play. And it's like, Oh, that must be a 240-pound fullback he did that to. It's like, no, it's a 300-pound guard he did that to. And again, when you're talking about a, a lot of time with edge rushers, some of the speed edge rushers, right? We're talking a little smaller guys. This is a big physical guy who can do this in the run game and is not just trying to beat people around the edge or isn't just like winning with his hands and getting past a guy. He can get a past a guy. He's taking something on here. You don't see, I mean, a, a, an edge rusher like that, when you're going after the quarterback, you don't slam into an offensive lineman the way he slams into the guard trying to make this play here. And it's like two, you know, two big horn sheep hitting each other horns to horns and he wins the battle and then makes the play. And again, that's, it's a guy who at his peak can get to the quarterback, but also brings this part of the game that even the very best edge rushers who are getting 15 million dollars a year, this offseason, Ellis, not every guy. I don't, I'm not going to make this a podcast where every single episode I talk about what a terrible signing Trey Hendrickson was in Cincinnati. I would like to see Trey Hendrickson do this in the run game. I don't know anything with whether he can. I've never seen him play a run game snap. My guess is he can't because this is a different kind of edge guy and that's what he brings. But we, we haven't even seen Miles Garrett do that in the run game. I mean, Clowney's had, I'm looking at uh, his tackles for loss, 16, 21, 16 his best seasons. Miles Garrett's topped out at 12. He's gotten double digit tackles for loss 
you know, last three years, but not at that rate. And obviously we definitely didn't see Olivier Vernon attacking the run game like this. So this is kind of a different dynamic. We've seen Miles Garrett come screaming around the edge like that uh, going after the quarterback, but uh, not, not so much in the run game. Yeah. It, it's such an explosive rep. It, it just jumps off the screen, the, the, the play against the 49ers and to, to end this run defense segment. What I love about the Austin Hooper rep is he wins in two ways. Of course he wins the rep because he doesn't get blocked, but that's also a psychological win. Like there is not another play where Austin Hooper or any tight end on the sidelines or just a a tone of the Atlanta offense is going to want to touch Clowney because of Austin Hooper mentally forfeiting before he even made contact with them. It's just, it's so rare. You see it in high school. You see it in college. You don't see men, son, boys in the NFL often. Clowney repeatedly does it in the run game. And just to, to clarify on this, Ellis, as you were talking about plays like this, you're pulling out plays like this, entering season eight with some of the injuries he's had, you think he's capable of these kind of plays with the Browns? I do. I do. And I'm going to keep, and this is probably going to become a theme now that I've stumbled upon it. I compare it a lot to Odell Beckham Jr. in the sense of athletes of that prestige have such an understanding of their body and when they're right, this is what they look like. And we've seen what Odell looks like when he's right. Clowney's that type of athlete. So when he comes on his introductory press conference to the Cleveland media and says he's trending towards 100% and he is itching to get there for really the first time in his career, and even if he isn't, he's still confident he can be defensive player of the year and an all-pro, that's not smoke. He believes that, and I believe he'll be accurate because, like Odell, they are so in touch with their body because when they are at that high level they know they're one of ones so i've been dorking around with this column that i should have written a week ago and i still haven't posted on the site yet but you're you're what you guys are saying here is helping me talk this out a little bit because i have become intrigued by the idea that 2014 was that draft where the browns missed on justin gilbert and they missed on johnny manziel and they now have four players from that draft on this roster They have Jadavion Clowney, they have Odell Beckham, they have Jarvis Landry, and they have Joel Batonio. And when you look back at that draft, there are a couple pillars in that draft. Aaron Donald's a pillar. You couldn't get him away from the Rams if you gave him 10 first-round picks. Mike Evans in Tampa has been a pillar. That guy's there game in and game out. But even a guy like Khalil Mack has changed teams, right? Because a lot of times when, when you think about how good is a player, what really matters is how good is the player for the team that drafted it? Because how good the player is when he goes out and does stuff well, if he's not doing it for your team, unless you got picks like they did with Mac, it doesn't matter that much. What did the team get out of the pick? And, and here's my point that I'm, you're helping me come to. Aaron Donald's great. The Browns couldn't get him for anything, right? The reason that they can have players like Jadavion Clowney and Odell Beckham Jr. on this team from that draft is because their careers haven't been perfect. If Jadavion Clowney was completely healthy, and completely productive for the first seven years of his career, he'd still be in Houston. If Odell Beckham was completely healthy and completely productive, he'd still be with the Giants. You wouldn't have the opportunity to get him and make up for the fact that you blew it on Justin Gilbert and Johnny Manziel in that draft. So if they were perfect, they wouldn't be Browns because those guys don't get away, but those guys are rare. How many pillars are there really? You don't draft pillars that often miles garrett might be one for the browns and baker mayfield might be one for the browns which is why it's such a big deal what you do often draft are good players 
who then either price themselves out, they have a couple injuries, they're a little bit of a headache, and they don't stay forever. But that's why they're here. And so in 2021, if the Browns get peak OBJ and peak Jadavian Clowney, that if they were consistently at their peak, they'd never be here. If they get that peak for one year in 2021, that's how they win a Super Bowl. So I am doing it. I'm being like, well, he's not always good. It's like, well, if he was, if he was always good, you wouldn't get him for $8 million on a one-year contract, Doug. What are you talking about? Don't expect consistent perfection. But, oh, man, if he can recapture enough of the flashes, they've got a lot of good players. And I love the idea. I, now, this to me, this is almost like a the, the, the Odell – and Jadavion Clowney and all the things they've gone through and all the expectations they had as young players and everything they have and haven't done in their first seven years. Like, is this it? If they are the best of who they can be, they might bring this city a Super Bowl. So I don't know that we can expect it, but man, Ellis and Scott, it could happen. It could happen. And I, so I do think it goes back to the thing that Scott said at the beginning. Good risk. Because there is some risk. But if there was no risk to it, he'd never be a Brown. Because the yeah. Texans never would have let him go. I completely agree. And, Doug, let me slightly add to the column you just penned there. And I'm going to give you this. And you don't even need to put Ellis L. Williams contributed to this article at the bottom of the piece. It, I think it is very important to point out the point that you're making the difference between what Cleveland has done and what they're building and what someone like the Arizona Cardinals did adding JJ Watt and AJ green. It's an age thing. These are Clowney and Beckham are guys still in that second contract, perhaps creeping towards their third contract and on the right side of 30 Beckham 29 Clowney 28 where AJ green 32 JJ Watt 32, 33 there's a big difference there and it's going to show in the peaks that those two can hit in Clowney and Beckham compared to the wishful thinking going on in Arizona with green and Watt. All right, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get into Jadavion Clowney getting after quarterbacks because that's still important and that's still fun. And we'll do that next on got to watch the tape. Doug Lamarice back with Scott Patsko and Ellis Williams. Make sure you're listening to the Orange and Brown Talk podcast five days a week. The draft is right around the corner. A lot of great stuff happened on the podcast and, of course, happening at cleveland.com slash browns. So make sure you are stopping by the website at least once a day to catch up on everything that we are writing there. All right. So we saw him scare people in the run game. Is he going to rip a quarterback's arm off? Or what do you got here for these three clips, Ellis? Yep. And I started with the run game. Largely because, again, I think that's where he will contribute the most. But his pass rushing traits really are just an extension of how he plays the run. And that's why I wanted to set you up there first to then show you where Clowney can be successful in rushing the passer. And then times why he hasn't gotten sacks, but has created pressures that disrupt plays. And I understand sacks are a loss of yardage and perhaps can generate a turnover, but you know, if it's third down and the quarterback throws an incomplete pass and it's fourth and seven now and the punt unit comes out, coach is going to take that every time. So this first rep, we're going back to Ravens, uh, Seahawks, week seven, another third quarter rep. I, 
I'm starting to worry I wrote these down wrong or every single play came in the third quarter, but regardless, this is another third quarter rep. Um, and it's Clowney on Stanley again. And this is a direct mirror. Again, the first rep coming in the second quarter. Um, and then this one coming in the second half, he is lined up on Stanley again. And it is exactly like the run stop, but it's a pass play by the Ravens. So Lamar, he's in Lamar Jackson's face in two seconds. I call this, I've called the first one, the teleport, but this, then it became clear after watching enough tape, this is just his go-to move, this swim move, this jab, and then split and swim move is his go-to move. And it helps him both in the run and the pass game. And there's not a lot to the play because it happened so fast. Once again, he gives him that shoulder shake at the snap. Stanley tries to punch him completely miss swim that right arm over and the play's done. I, I run it in slow motion one time too. Cause I think it's just fun to watch his, his wiggle, his lean and his explosiveness and in, in, in slow, but that's for him to dominate Stanley in the run game and the pass game in this same game again, shows what the Browns could be getting if we're getting, you know, 80 to 90% healthy Jadavion Clowney. Scott, he looks like to me like he's almost falling on his face going forward as he makes moves like this because there's such propulsion behind what he's doing. And and you can see like the effort. And obviously he has great balance and he's not falling over, but it's just all out. You know, it's funny. I think if you picked six plays to highlight of Miles Garrett, right? At least half of them, he'd be bending around the edge, right? I just, I, I, there's no bend in any of these Jadavion Clowney clips that you picked, Ellis, but there is propulsive, violent force all the time. And Scott, it's just an interesting, as you think about, again, these guys in tandem, if, if there are fans who they know what Miles Garrett being a dangerous edge guy, what that looks like, this looks different. This is not the same way of going about business. It'll be really fun. I think for Browns fans, when they start watching more of these reps, because he, it, it really is, there's just a lot of force to it. I wouldn't want to get in front of it. Yeah. And I think it's, it's obviously a lot different than what you had with Olivier Vernon too. And with Garrett switching sides so often last season, I got to think some tackles probably welcome the sight of Olivier Vernon, knowing that he's not someone who's going to throw a bunch of moves at you. He's going to try to push you back and, you know, maybe be a little more uh, sound in case uh, it is a run play. Um, but that's not going to be the case when you have Clowney and Garrett out there because, all right, you, you get a playoff from Garrett, but now you're dealing with this. And uh, it's, it's a lot more involved and you have a lot more to deal with. It's not just somebody trying to bull their way past you with their, with their strength. It's using that just that burst to – to basically make it so you can't even touch them. And by the way, I don't know who 55 is off the top of my head, the linebacker on the outside, but he's kind of like the unsung hero of this clip who rushes in with nobody in front of him, thanks to Clowney getting uh, all of Stanley's attention. And then he leapfrogs the running back and almost lands on Lamar Jackson too. So if you're watching this clip, that's play it back and watch that dude. Because <laughs> if Clowney doesn't get there, uh, this this, like, this is this guy's highlight tape on SportsCenter. It's his big That's moment. 
Scott's bringing that guy in at least for a look in camp, whoever that is. So congratulations to that guy. <laughs> I know, Ellis, you have nicknamed all six of these plays from the JV on Clowney, but I would like to just call this last this last twofer here the the uh, uh, the Josh Allen looks nervous experience. And if you pick these for me, I appreciate it because Josh Allen looks nervous on both of these. He does. And on the second one, we're going to end with the no-no. He does make one heck of a throw. And we'll we'll get to that. But that's what Clowney does. I mean, how could you not be nervous knowing that this guy is screaming down the line at you and now – Pair that with Miles Garrett and, and and my goodness, I don't know what I don't know what Big Ben's gonna do. I, I do not know what the stationary Ben Roethlisberger is gonna do, but that's a whole different gotta watch the tape. These last two, uh, we're now going to the present 2020 reps of Clowney in a Titans uniform. I promise they exist, and when he's healthy, again, they're good reps. Uh, this is third and long, third quarter again, um, from the Buffalo 15. It's an incomplete week five, 2020. This is an important rep to point out because. He, the Titans are running some similar stuff to what the Browns are going to do. And this is stuff you'll see Clowney do uh, this formation. Simplistically is called a wide nine. Uh, you have a, your right end over left tackle as far out and an exaggerated split, uh, giving him the best angle at the quarterback and really guaranteeing a one-on-one block there. That then means the rest of the line is going to step right. The, the rest of the offensive line is going to step right to combat the overloaded, three uh, down defensive lineman side that the Titans are displaying, but this allows you then to get creative and stuff. Joe Woods is going to want to do the stunts, the loops. That's exactly what this is. This is a loop. And it is again, the, the reoccurring theme is disruptive as we run it on the snap. You get clowny one stepping, you get the receiver, try to chip him. He can't be touched pausing it right before the, receiver right after the receiver tries to chip and you see the the offensive line step right you see the crease they're trying to hit right there Clowney hits it him and 70 are in the gap the Bills offensive line does a great job zone blocking this they see it where you want to create confusion is having 70 step stay stepping down in his block and just let that seam be wide open and it's a Clowney sack but the Bills are ready for it that's fine Clowney counters he keeps he keeps scraping across the offensive line until he comes and meets the running back on the outside, takes both their hits at the same time, and still somehow is the first guy to touch Josh Allen here. Kind of forces a, a tough throw. It was a long play anyway, like third and 14, good coverage. But for Clowney to basically circumnavigate this Bills offensive line, take on the guard and running back and still be the first one to touch Josh Allen, for me, that's enough to explain why the sacks aren't there, but the hurries, the pressures, that's what you're paying for. And eventually the sacks are going to come. Like this is what, this is exactly what the Browns want. They rush with four on this play. And if you watch Josh Allen, he's the third or fourth read here. He's looking all over and that, you know, the Browns put a lot of uh, effort into improving their, their coverage this off season. And you drop everybody else back in coverage, the quarterback, has to hold on to the ball longer. And when that happens, usually something good happens going to happen for the defense. And this is, this is what Joe Woods would love to see. It makes me wonder about, as you said, Ellis, sort of like a lot of pressures, but the sack numbers aren't quite there. I don't think it's possible for Jadavion Clowney to sneak up on a quarterback. 
right? That sometimes it's like, or and if he's not just doing speed rush around the edge, hey, boom, you're there. You always, he's like an earthquake. Like, you know, he's coming. And so it's like, oh, he's coming. He's coming. Oh, I get rid of And like, you're not, you're not going to let yourself get sacked because you don't want to get hit by him. And it's, you can see, I mean, if, if again, the people who have watched every snap and Daniel Jeremiah is saying it's more about pressure and disruption, it's disruption than production. These clips are helping explain that a little bit because he seems like wonderfully ragged to me that like every play, he's sort of throwing his body into the guy in front of him, turning, slipping past the guy, giving like a little wiggle step to get around him. You know, it's not like smooth, but it's like, he's got a style to how he's getting to the quarterback. And I could see how it's like, it would be, you'll be a pain to block him for 55 snaps. He's not going to give you every snap. He's like, hurling himself into you or wiggling around you and like, you know, half knocking you over. And then by you said what you said, like the end of that 49ers game, he doesn't, he still has explosion left and he's probably worn the other guys down. They're exhausted because they've gotten clownied for three hours. So, all right, I'm going to write a story. I'm going to have Jadavion Clowney run into me 10 times and I'm going to see how long I'll be in the hospital. And that'll be my story. But he is, there's just, it's so propulsive, man. It's just, and that's why, again, if he's healthy enough to allow himself to do that for a good number of snaps, for a good number of games, he'll give the Browns exactly what they want. Yeah. And speaking to that freshness, he's coming to a team where he's not going to be expected to be the number one rusher. You know, they're going to be able to roll him and he'll remain fresh for that fourth quarter. And then his extra level that would have been there if he was going to run into the ground because he's proven incapable will be there and it's it, it is going to be a situation where the Browns can really take control with this defense potentially at the end of games which we would have never said last year uh do you guys want me to get to this this last one quick or anything else yeah go ahead yeah, yep. yeah. all right this last one I, I we've been raving about Clowney I, I did need to include one rep that just you know made me cringe a little bit uh, Browns fans if you watch this you're gonna have flashbacks of the Kansas City game uh, same game, second quarter, 10:52 mark. Actually, I have the timestamp on this one. Thank goodness. Third and eight, and they complete this somehow. It's it's what I teased earlier. Uh, just a heck of a throw by Josh Allen. But uh, Clowney is on the outside facing Buffalo left tackle Dwayne Brown, one of the better tackles in football. And this is what gets Clowney in trouble. A clear theme to this breakdown. He prefers snapping inside cutting inside as Doug pointed out you don't see a lot of loop in his game and you don't see his explosive plays being the looping plays he, he does it he, I mean he, he has a complete bag but when he's blowing something up and when he needs to make a play he relies on cutting inside which explains two things pretty well to me I think I need to watch some more tape on this but I have a good feeling that that explains some lack of sack numbers because when you cut inside like that you really it's boom or bust and two, it explains why his double team numbers are heightened because when you cut inside, you can get chipped by a guard and all of a sudden now you've got a guard and a tackle on you compared if you're looping outside, the chances of that remaining a one-on-one block are, are pretty certain. And that's what happens on this play. Cl- Clowney on the snap cuts right inside with that same type of move we've been seeing. Rather than a swim, he tries to rip under this time. N- nothing really going. It's a rep. He doesn't win. It happens. <laughs> this is the NFL. 
his motor keeps going. He doesn't give up and he, he keeps getting after the football. But what I don't like about the play is the loss of contain Josh Allen, like the playmaker he is, is extending to throw, not extending to run here. And somehow they complete. I mean, if you pause this ball when Josh Allen's on his back and Stefan Diggs is right about to, to catch it, that's as cross body cross field throw as you really can make aside from playing Madden. It, it, it's just nuts. But my point is some quarterbacks will see that edge and take off for a first down Browns fans again, know what that looks like. I hope he develops a little more discipline here in Cleveland because you can start to see the tendencies already showing as we work our way through this dive. But again, for all the boom potential, this one so, so rep is probably just what you're going to have to take with having Clowney on your team. You roll with his decisions like this, because like a safety that like a Troy Paul Malu who would come down and try and time a, a, a jump and, and blow up a play. Sometimes you just, when you go off script, it, it works on defense and you need guys like that. Sometimes this is the alternative though. So what do you think, Scott, to these, where, is this a, uh, an encouraging set of, of plays to you? Like, as you said, it's a good risk. Is, is this showing you why he's here? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, like I said, you, you're not getting this from, from other guys who have played across from, from Miles Garrett. And I'm glad uh, Ellis mentioned the double teams um, because in 20, let's see, 2019, um, his double team rate was com- comparable to Miles Garrett's. And like Miguel's like points out, where he, how he rushes has a lot to do with that. Uh, but his win rate overall, not just on double teams, just overall was also comparable to, to Garrett, you know, he's up in the, uh, you know, the, the upper right-hand corner of, of the graph, you know, where you're kind of trying to find the guys who are good at win rate and also face a lot of double teams. So you're, you're in the class with the Bosa's and, and Khalil Mack, people like that. Um, and halfway through last season, he was also up in that group. Now he wasn't seeing, he wasn't, uh, he didn't have a win rate as high as Miles Garrett or Joey Bosa, Chase Young, even JJ Watt. Um, but when it comes to double team rate, he was right there with them. So, you know, maybe they try to get him to rush a little more around the edge. Who knows? You don't want to change his game because he does what he does well. And, and that's it. But um, those running backs are going to be worried about miles Garrett too. So like on a play, this last play where he kind of pushed uh Josh Allen out of the pocket a little bit. We saw that all the time for Miles Garrett. There's, you know, but there's no one else to gobble them up on the other side a lot of the times. Now maybe it's, you know, maybe it's Clowney pushing someone out of the pocket and, and Miles Garrett's there to, to gobble them up. I mean, that does seem to work, right? If 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 Miles Garrett is winning around the edge and forcing a quarterback to step up and Jadavion Clowney is rushing inside and eating him, mm-hmm. like that's the Oh, his sack numbers went way up. And it's like, yeah, because Miles Garrett was like forcing quarterbacks to go right where he was winning. And beyond that, and we were, you know, football, everything. It's all about how it fits together. I think you guys do a good job of talking about this stuff. You can see how this fits, that he's a different type of edge guy with Miles Garrett, and that they really might be pretty effective, not just in drawing attention, but in their styles of play, really complementing each other. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. You're getting a, a guy who brings something to the table aside from what you've had here too. Like we've spent this whole so far this whole first segment kind of comparing and contrasting Olivier Vernon and Clowney. 
and the Browns had seen what a traditional, you know, heavier set, hold the edge type of defensive end would do for their defense. Now they want to shake it up. Now they want to try something different. And you could find a Olivier Vernon type in the draft, perhaps at 26, and then still have Clowney as your upside guy who brings something different. So these pieces are really starting to fit together on the defense. That's just the front end. We've talked about the back end. You see the picture that Joe Woods is trying to paint. All right. I hope you guys learned a little bit more about the guy that you're excited about. That was a good breakdown. I learned more about Javion Clowney. Wonderfully ragged. Just really, it's, it's, it's fun to watch him play. And at the very least, we did a whole, you know, we had a lot of, at least one podcast last year about Olivier Vernon's stalemates, where it's like, I'm going to bull rush you. You're going to block me. We're going to stand here. And I, at least, if, I'm sure Javion Clowney has some stalemates sometimes. I bet you his stalemates look cool. Like Olivier Vernon's stalemates never looked that cool. Looked like two guys just kind of standing there looking at each other. At least, even if you block Clowney, he's probably like, like throwing his body around. So at least there's something to it. So, all right, we're going to dive in a little bit more on other parts of the defensive line and what's happening there. We'll do that next on Gotta Watch the Tape. Doug Lamarie's back with Ellis Williams and Scott Patsko. It's not all about Clowney. Scott Patsko, dive in on something else on the defensive line on Gotta Watch the Tape. Yeah, the Browns are really remaking their defensive line. Uh, Miles Garrett uh, might be the only face uh, you know, held over from last season. And I think when you talk about the interior of the line, I think it's important to know what the Browns lost uh, so we can know what they're trying to gain maybe going forward. And so let's start with a stat that I know we've, we've mentioned multiple times on this podcast. The Browns were 25th in defensive DVOA last year. 19th against the run. And uh, I want to focus specifically on the run defense here because that's the biggest job uh, of the interior of your defensive line. You could run on the Browns last season, but I think it really mattered which direction you ran. Most running in a football game is will be behind the guards and or the center. And which going forward here, we're going to refer to that as up the middle guards and or centers. Um, The the data I have doesn't really separate them. So we're just going to kind of bunch them together. And the team that saw the fewest attempts up the middle was actually the Giants. And they saw it 42% of the running plays they faced last season. And if you look at the rates of other directions, like left end, right end, left tackle, right tackle, no team faced even 20% of their runs in those directions. So again, up the middle, very popular in a, in a broad sense. The Browns, meanwhile, no team saw runs up the middle more than the Browns. They led the league 71% of opponents, of, of opponents' runs were in that direction. And not surprisingly, they ranked 26th in average yards allowed up the middle, 4.7. Uh, in 2019, it was very similar. The Browns were 30th in run DVOA. They ranked high in targeted runs up the middle. They were fourth overall, 65%. And again, they were near the bottom in yards allowed, four and a half. So they're seeing a lot, and they're not able to stop it very well when people are running up the middle. And that brings us to Sheldon Richardson and Larry Ogunjobi, one half of the fabled defensive line that debuted in 2019 and was quickly dubbed the potential strength of not just the defense, but the entire team. I'm sure we all remember that. It didn't really work out. <laughs> a, a lot didn't work out, but yes, that was one of the things. <laughs> a lot. Yes. <laughs> Richardson and Ogunjobi got the most snaps of defensive tackle over the past few seasons. They each played at least twice as many snaps uh, on the inside than anybody else on the roster in those two years. So it was pretty much those two guys. Richardson's run grade the last two seasons, and for uh, 
perspective here. He played mostly on the left side of the defensive line when he would line up. His run run defense was great. 67.8, which ranked 39th, and 75.1, which ranked 26th. So it wasn't horrible, wasn't great, but it was it was solid, especially last uh, two years ago when he was at 75.1. Ogan Joby, as we've mentioned before, just really got worse and worse after his rookie year. He often lining up on the right side uh, of the interior, graded at 55.2 against the run last year, which ranked 86th among, amongst interior linemen, 60.2 the year before, which was 93rd. That's, again, that's basically replacement level in both cases. So that was the interior run defense. You had one guy who was all right, and another guy who just seemed to get worse with each year. As tacklers, Richardson, Replacement level grades the last two years, 51.2 and 45.4. And Ogunjobi kind of just fell off the map last year. He was at 29 uh, as a tackler. He had uh, a missed tackle rate of 7.8, which ranked eighth among all defensive tackles. So you kind of put all this together. You can see why they were in no rush to try and keep him here this offseason. Actually, Richardson and Ogunjobi were both in the top 10 in missed tackle rate uh, in 2019. So, again, this wasn't an interior defensive line that was great at bringing people down. PFF actually has a stat called run stop percentage, which looks at tackles made specifically in the run game and whether or not they created what's considered a failure for the offense. Richardson ranked 32nd among interior linemen last season. Ogunjobi was 40th. Ogunjobi was 60th the year before that. So Sheldon Richardson was more than a run stopper, obviously. He gave you production in the pass rush. Uh, from the inside, he's not one of the best in the league at it, but he was third on the Browns in pressures last season with 43, and that's twice as many as Ogunjobi gave you. In 2019, they were second and third behind Miles Garrett. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that uh, Olivier Vernon didn't uh, play a full season, but still, these guys are you know, among the leaders on your team. But we're still only talking like 37 or 36 pressures, and – for comparison, like the interior, the Steelers defensive line, you know, those guys are getting pressures in the 60s and 70s. So that's kind of the high point versus where the Browns have been the last couple of years. Um, but as run defenders, the Browns certainly have room to improve up the middle. The better their interior linemen are at stopping the run, the fewer players Joe Woods needs to devote to the run and the more he can have in coverage. And getting Richardson back, which is something uh, Mary Kay Cabot has reported as a, as a possibility, would certainly be a good thing, you know getting him back on the Browns line. But if we're looking at his performance as a run defender and a tackler the last couple of seasons, he's not irreplaceable. And I'll get to the guys who could be uh, the, re- the replacements this year if he doesn't return. Um, but I'll stop there and get your thoughts on, on Richardson and, and even Ogunjobi and, and their play in the interior the last couple of years. Pretty clearly Larry Ogunjobi had, had proven himself to be kind of a not a winning player for a good team that he just, he was hurting you probably. I still thought that Sheldon Richardson was kind of like a winning player, not a superstar by any means, but productive enough, like doing some stuff, a little bit of a threat in there. Seems like a good guy to have on the team, um, but probably not at that price. So it's interesting. It generally kind of feels like you're going to get into next, like, okay, well, who's going to play at the two tackle spots instead there's definitely room for improvement though, is what you're saying that the Browns are changing things in there because they think they 
need to, but also are able to get better, right? I mean, it, they don't need pro bowlers in there, but they, they could just have better players than what they had last couple of years. I think being cost effective is important too, which I'll, I'll get into here in a minute, but I don't like people are, are throwing out uh, interior defensive linemen as a possibility of 26. And I'm not sure that's, that's the right way to go here. Uh, when you look at in general, what quote unquote analytics says about the position and also just what we've seen from Andrew Barry so far. And the fact that he was willing to let somebody like Sheldon Richardson leave and see if he can get a, a deal close to what he wants to make get out from that $13 million cap hit. And, you know, if he comes back, it's certainly not going to be at that price. Scott, do you think what they did with Sheldon Richardson is just smart financial maneuvering or perhaps Ellis is the cutting of Sheldon Richardson proof that the cap is real. I love that. I, love that. <laughs> yep. I was like, I was sad to see Sheldon Richardson go, but I was like, it's proof the cap is real, baby. Yep. Yep. I'll say this. It's proof the Browns think the cap is real. <laughs> How about that? That is your out every single time. Just because they think it doesn't mean I have to think it. You know what you are? You know what you are, Ellis Williams? You're an anti-capper. You know, I, I think... I think there's a, a cap is real poster bet in here somewhere that needs to be made, but I'm not sure how you win or lose that bet. I know how you win or lose. Well, Ellis would do. I said, you ask Andrew Barry, is the cap real? <laughs> but Ellis would not take his word for it. Next time we go to the combine, <laughs> Ellis, next year in February, when we're at the combine and life is back to normal, I want you to ask all 32 GMs at their availability, is the cap real? And I'll just bet you on who gets 50% of the vote. That would be a great bit and some solid content. Just one question each time. You can like put it on a loop, just like record everything and just boom. boom. It's kind of like those Twitter accounts. Like, is it the weekend yet? And, you know, <laughs> I, I, that, we're, I'm following through with that. One of the worst things about the combine is the guy who shows up at every press conference and asks the same question. But I think you would break that. I think, I think people would generally enjoy knowing that you're about to ask that question. Yeah, you'd, you'd, be, you'd be a viral hit, Ellis. Um, Ellis, you think they can get better at defensive tackle? Do you think that in 2021, the level of play, I guess there's two separate questions. Will it be better or, and can it be better, right? I mean, maybe it can, not necessarily it will, but what do you think? Scott laid out some great stuff about how it was just a tough hang for Larry Ogunjobi. When you're the fourth m- most talented or the guy with the, lowest level of expectation or game planning on a defensive line, Miles Garrett, Sheldon Richardson, Olivier Vernon, and it's still not working for you. It, I'm just, it's just, it, it was a clear decision to make. I'm excited about the guys that they've brought in that Scott's going to get into, but I'm most fascinated with how this ends with Sheldon Richardson. Cause you understand the dance here. Sheldon's about his money being in the locker room. It was always fun to just hear his little side comments. He was never afraid to make them about just when the cash is getting deposited in that checking account. One of my first days in the Browns locker room, just by chance I was walking by and he asked me who the highest paid player in the NFL was. And luckily I just guessed Russell Wilson and it, he then Googled it and he was right. And he said something about how Russell Wilson gets, you know, 2.5 million deposited every Sunday. He's so he's about that paper, right? So what's going on here with Sheldon, just with that one anecdote, I see that in this league, if you don't, if you agree to a pay cut, you then will never get that number again. 
So Sheldon, rather than saying, nope, I, I, I or yes, I do accept, he's going to walk, see if another team will pay him that when they likely don't. I really could see a reunion to this team. He posted how he was just starting to feel like home. He's a locker room guy. And this would be cold blooded by Andrew Barry to get Sheldon Richardson back at that number. So I'm just fascinated how this plays out financially and on the field. I just don't think it affects them all that much unless injuries become an issue. So Scott, who do they have right now to reset who they have on the interior of the defensive line and what they do have, is it enough or must there be at least one addition, whether it's Sheldon Richardson back, somebody in the first half of the draft, some other free agent, right? Like how good is that room right now? All right. So here's what's left. Jordan Elliott, third round pick last season. He was 47.5. His grade was 47.5 against the run last season. Overall, his, his grade on defense was replacement level. So it was not great, but remember he was a rookie and there is still some bright spots there. And this, the, the one that really jumped out to me is he played 164 snaps against the run last season, which was the 14th most on the team. Right. So he's in the top half there. He had zero missed tackles last season. In fact, his tackling grade was 75.2, which was second best on the team behind DJ Goodson. So if you're going to be good at something and you're an interior defender, that's a good thing to be good at. And that's a good building block for him going into year two, because everybody on the Browns who had at least 164 snaps against the run last season, like Elliot had at least five missed tackles. So coming out of Missouri, wow, he's a guy who graded above 90 against the run. Also the pass rush, but obviously you know, against the run, he did very well. And now, he only had 350 total snaps last season, but now he's coming back on the same defense, the same defensive coordinator, the same defensive line coach. And that's how you get better is continuity, not switching things around in, in, in year two. And he's going to get chances because if Richard Justin doesn't come back, they're left with basically three guys there. And as I'm going to point out here in the middle, in a moment, players get better when they struggle, if they struggle as rookies. It's not, all right, he played poorly as a rookie. He's a bust, as we've seen some Browns fans kind of throw out there about guys like him and, and Jacob Phillips. Andrew Billings, he missed his 2016 rookie year with a knee injury, so we'll consider 2017 his rookie year. He finished with a PFF grade of 45.7 that year, so not unlike Elliott in his first year. You know, Andrew Billings graded poor, poorly against the run. He was at replacement level. He was horrible as a tackler. He had a grade of 26.5. He was third in missed tackle rate among defensive tackles in 2017. Uh, so it was a rough year for him in what was essentially his rookie year. But even though tackling has been kind of iffy uh, in the last few years, the rest of his game matured. In his second and third seasons, he graded at 71 and 69, uh, which is like covering – right around starter level performance. And that's notable because he was also getting starter level snaps. So this is a guy who you can look at Jordan Elliott and say, all right, that that's a good trajectory for, for him to be on. That'd be great. If, if Elliott kind of makes that jump in year two. So it, it's a guy who 
went from really struggling to getting starter level snaps and then kind of playing like it. And well, he graded well against the run. He wasn't making run stopping tackles at the same rate as Richardson or even Ogan Joby or last couple years. But I think that has to do with the fact that he just wasn't tackling very well those two seasons. And I'm sure uh, the Browns would love to get their hands on him and try to shore that up. But uh, at least you had a guy who was performing well against the run overall in Billings and he was doing it at a higher rate. Definitely the one of the guys you lost. Um, then there's Malik Jackson who has really been consistently good as a run defender and a tackler from, you know, 2013 to 2017. He, he graded at starter level throughout that stretch. He was a pro bowler in 2017. He had four forced fumbles that year, which probably had a lot to, to do with him getting votes too. But the last three seasons have been different. Just 56.3 versus the run in 2018. That was his final year with the Jaguars. He played just one game in 2019 with the Eagles because he had the foot injury. Uh, last season in 15 games, he was back up into the 60s versus the run. Not his previous level, but still, again, better than what Ogunjobi gave you the last couple of seasons. It's also worth noting that as a rookie, Malik Jackson's defensive grade was 54.1. That included 54.5 against the run. So, again, players can improve. And I think the Browns – are kind of banking on that with Jordan Elliott, especially if Richardson doesn't come walking back through the door. Um, but at least in Jackson's case, it's not really about improving anymore. It's about getting him back to something close to what he was. Now that, that trio of Elliott, Billings, and Jackson, like the best version of them seems to give you at least what you had with Richardson and Ogunjobi, uh, especially against the run over the last two seasons. But there's still a lot of unknown there. You know, does Elliott make the jump? Does Billings continue uh, to be solid in a, in a new scheme? And after sitting out a year, um, and then can Jackson get back to where he was? But the, here's the thing. The Browns maybe don't care because I mentioned before about cost effective. Um, you've heard about wins above replacement in baseball. PFFs tried to create something like that for football. And they basically try to determine which positions have the biggest impact on scoring, which is also kind of a way of measuring your impact on winning games because you know you got to score or stop scores to win. Quarterback obviously is the top of this list of positions. It's almost two times the impact of second place, which is wide receiver. And that makes sense because this is a passing league. Then you got cornerback and safety. Again, makes a lot of sense. The, the, the NFL set records for scoring last season and passing offense. But at the bottom of this list, very bottom of impact is defensive line interior defensive line. And that's notable because if you average the top 10 contracts at every position, interior defenders actually rank fourth in average salary per year behind quarterback, edge rusher, and wide receiver. So the value isn't in sync with what the cost is at this position. In 2020, the Browns ranked sixth in cap dollars they devoted to defensive tackle. So they were kind of contributing to this high cost of the position. This season, they're going to rank, as of, at least as of right now, they rank 29th, which seems to make more sense for a franchise like the Browns, one that clearly understands the value of advanced data. And I'm sure that they have their own guys working under Paul D. Podesta, coming up with their own wins above replacement type metric to figure that out. But even if Richardson does return, it's going to be a lot less than that 13.6 million cap hit. And that might be the whole point here. The Browns are trying to get the same level of play from the interior of the line at a much lower cost than before, which is important for a team that's going to be handing out a lot of contract extensions here over the next, next year. So again, they, it might not 
be so much about getting the level of play higher than it was before on the interior line. It's about having it at the threshold you need it and it being paid at the rate you feel is, is worth it. So I think this summer we could do something maybe at least maybe once a month with the got to watch a tape where we make it like specifically roster building. And maybe we focus on a position and how we think the Browns view this position. What does the ideal room at that position look like? How much of your cap space should be spent on that position? Because I love stuff like this because there's like three points I want to make here. Number one, Andrew Barry didn't bring Sheldon Richardson here. John Dorsey did. It's much like everything that's playing out with Sheldon Richardson, I think is what, how things may play out with the wide receivers next off season, right? That it's just like, listen, I got here. They're good players. I'm going to get up just jettison them for no reason. But once we start building the roster, the way I think you allocate resources, we just can't spend this much money on these type of guys at these type of positions, no matter how good they are. So this is a preview of what's going to happen at receiver. But also I think you could have argued Sheldon Richardson was the what best player on the defense a year ago. Like if you put Miles Garrett and Denzel Ward definitely ahead of him, like who else is deaf? He was one of the five best players on the defense last year, though, wasn't he? I think probably. I mean, maybe, uh, no, he's six, maybe he's four. I don't know. But now, even if, if you kept him right where he was at his price, when you add John Johnson, when you add Troy Hill, when you add Jadavion Clowney, when you add healthy Grant Delpit, when you add full season Ronnie Harrison, when you add, I think he, now he wouldn't have been anything more than like your eighth best defensive player, right? Even if he comes back. So not that that's like, well, but as you start to invest in more resources, then you say, okay, we can't spend this much on him at this position when he's our eighth best defensive player because we paid for all these other guys. We've got to fill in with those guys. And the whole point is those guys don't have to be as good. We said there's room for improvement at defensive tackle. I think you could argue they don't even have to be as good. Nobody has to be as good at Sheldon Richardson because they're going to be better at the other defensive end spot. They're going to be better at slot corner. They're going to be better at every safety spot. They're probably, you know, maybe if Anthony Walker is a little better than BJ Goodson, whatever, you're going to improve other places. And then defensive tackle becomes what linebacker was last year, which is like, listen, we know, we know we're just not going to spend. It's not going to be great, but we went 11 and five with our linebackers not being very good. We might be talking about in the Super Bowl in the third quarter of the Super Bowl when they're up two scores on Tom Brady. We're going to be like, I don't know. Tom Brady might lead a comeback in the third quarter. The defensive tackle is still not that great. And they'll be like, no, they're fine. They win the Super Bowl. And then their average defensive tackles are rolling down the streets of Cleveland, man. I think that's all very possible because it's how it fits together. And I think there was a time for where who they were when Sheldon Richardson was here. He fit where that defense was at that point. And right now, with everything Scott said about valuing resources, a $13 million defensive tackle, no matter who he is, doesn't fit anymore. And so he's not here. Okay, I'm done. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't look at it as best. I would, look, I would call him like who's most important. And that's, I think, when you can really start looking at the positions uh, and start assigning value and, and price tag to him. Because, uh, I mean, Kevin Johnson was important. Javier Thomas was important last year wasn't the best player, but I, w- I would say he at times was more important than Sheldon Richardson because of the position he was in. 
and the situations he found himself in. So I think that's probably more how Andrew Barry is looking at it in terms of we need to get better at this position because it's important. We need to sign Troy Hill. We need to sign Josh, uh, John Johnson because that position is important compared to, you know, this other position. On top of that, it's Andrew Barry identifying the efficiency in the market. If defensive tackle isn't in, as important on that scale of position ranking, then as you guys have laid out, why pay Sheldon that number? Meanwhile, and we've talked about on this podcast, it's quite clear that the safety and slot corner market are not being paid appropriately for how important they are on a football field. So Barry will pay that spot, underpay it, find value, and cut the excess fat off his roster in a guy like Sheldon Richardson making double-digit millions. Scott, what would your advice be? What would you do to bring in the person who should be one of who should be at the very least the fourth best interior defensive lineman on this team. So if they, you went over the three, they have, are you really into bringing back Sheldon Richardson? How high of a draft pick would you use on this spot? You sounds like not a first rounder. Would you explore the veteran for three or 4 million bucks on a one-year deal kind of thing? Where might you go here? I mean, you're not rotating a lot of guys through there. Like I said before, they Richardson and Ogan Joby really dominated the snaps in that spot. Uh, Jordan Elliott was third uh, in, in snaps for the Browns last season, and he had uh, less than half of what Ogan Joby had. And I think the year before, um, gosh, I'm just bringing it up now. It was it was even a bigger disparity because both Richardson and Joby had over 700 snaps in 2019. Yeah, so Larry Joby 779, Sheldon Richardson, 774 in 2019. And you got us go all the way down to, remember Devereaux Lawrence? He had 222 snaps at defensive uh, tackle that year. Um, so that's quite a big gap. And then the next guy had 178. So those guys aren't getting a ton of, of snaps. Now you got three guys who I think, are expected to maybe be closer in range of snaps with Elliot and Jackson and Billings uh, in that group. And maybe that's how they go, but I don't know that it's really necessary to draft somebody and say, all right, this guy's got to be an important part of this rotation, no matter where you, you draft him. Um, I, I really doubt they're going to go into the season with three defensive tackles. They're, they're going to pick up more bodies, but, um, but as far as who gets the most playing time, I think it's these three guys. Ellis, is there on passing downs, is there a world where you think we will see Miles Garrett, Tack McKinley, and Jadavion Clowney on the field together, where that at least lessens uh, some small percent of the snap burden on the tackles because one of those three ends will be playing tackle on third and 11? I would lean towards yes. It's not something the Browns and Joe Woods have shown, likely because of the thin level of talent they had at edge rusher prior. So now that they're they're they may be flirting with a surplus and, you know, imagine if they draft an edge at, at 26. Now we're, now we're really talking about an ability to deploy four defensive ends on passing downs. And I think that there is some gimmick to that. That isn't sustainable. Uh, I remember making the point about how, you know, there's a human side to being a coach and, 
telling your defensive tackles to do the dirty work on first and second down and not allowing them to then chase the quarterback on third down can be depleting at times, though not a reason why you wouldn't play four defensive ends. There's been great success doing that. I would, but just because we haven't seen it yet, I don't know. Cause it, it, it's also along the same lines of like, we for a whole year suspected and waited for the Nick Chubb cream hunt package to dominate the offensive side of the ball and it never happened. Okay. But so, you know, maybe Sheldon Richardson will come back, but they're not in a spot, Scott, where they need him to come back. They're okay. Because frankly, if you have three guys you believe in for two defensive tackle spots, that's enough. That's how it works. Nobody really more than that plays. So that, that makes sense. They're in a different, a decent spot. And, and clearly not that it was a one for one trade, but a little bit in the moment, it felt like that. Clowny in, Richardson out. Good trade. I would think so. I like mean, if you only have, you can't have both. You can only have one. You'd take Clowny. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and by the way, Clowny, his let's see, one, two, third year in the league, eighty-three snaps on the interior. Uh, that was his first Pro Bowl year. Uh, Romeo Cornell was a defensive coordinator. He left. Uh, that post and Rabel comes in and Clowney's interior snaps drop all the way down to like 26. And then he never even gets double digits until last season. Um, Miles Garrett, 51 and 33 interior snaps his first two years, which was with Greg Williams as a defensive coordinator. And Williams leaves, he gets five and then 16 last year. And we talked on an earlier episode uh, of the pod about, uh, how one of those interior snaps was the, the strip sack against the Bengals a week too. So um, maybe we see more of it if, but I mean, you're still talking a handful of game. So I, you know, I don't know that we're going to see a ton of that. Though I started this podcast off by telling listeners not to worry about your David Clowney's injury history. I think it is important to mention that if we're just looking at Sheldon Richardson and Clowney over the past two years, Richardson's been the model of consistency and Clowney's had quite a turbulent past two years, 22 games, 17 months. It is what it is, but at their heights, the Browns defensive line is better with Javian Clowney. That's a, it's a, it's a very well thought out little caveat there. You put there at the end Ellis, cause that's real. I mean, it's like, you're not going to be like me. You're not just going to dig in on one side and pretend that the facts on the other side don't exist, which again is my strategy for life. So I appreciate you going there. I, I, it's interesting, Scott. I came in, Scott, thinking like, okay, well, Jackson, Billings, Elliott, but they've got to add something. But I, you made me realize that they really don't. I mean, those snap count numbers opened my eyes to like, they're okay there. And, and again, this is the plan for this. I mean, this is all this stuff. These, I, I think their first round, they're trying to win the Super Bowl this year. I think their first round pick has to be targeted toward a guy they think can help them win the Super Bowl this year, which I guess is obvious. But I think like if Greedy Williams was 100 percent healthy, I think maybe you could make your first round pick and say, we honestly don't care if the first round pick does anything this year, but we want him to be a starter at an important position next year. Right. Elliot in the third round, rough rookie year, but enough belief that allows you to let go of the $13 million a year guy. That's how this is supposed to work here. And I've said at various times over the years, hey, get used to the idea of some good players leaving. Sheldon Richardson might be the first example of that, 
of like, it's not that they don't like him. It's not that he can't help them. It's not that he's not a productive player to some level. It's that he's not worth the money and they have to spend the money elsewhere and they can't afford him at that price. And that's life in the big city. So you have your draft pick, your mid round draft pick from the year before, who's good enough to allow you to spend the Richardson money somewhere else and let go of him. And that's how you sustain winning around your pillars. Like you've got to hit the Jordan Elliott's of the world, the Jacob Phillips of the world. You've got to hit on some of those, which is why like, I'm a little like disappointed that like, it feels like, well, the Sheldrick Redwine, Mac Wilson, Sioni Taki Taki sort of like middle of that draft of those defensive guys. None of, if, if you hit on those guys right now, you'd be like, Hey, we don't have to go spend a bunch of money on a linebacker or safety because these, these guys are ready to, to start and be not great, but solid starters. And they're not. So you'd like to raise the level above what they've gotten from those three guys and hope that the Jordan Elliott's of the world hit. And it allows you to keep this thing rolling around the key guys. All right. That was a good episode. Draft is next week. We're going to have a lot of roundtables, we think, next week. We're not sure exactly what guy to watch the tape is going to look like in a week when the NFL draft is in Cleveland, and we are covering that. We are covering what's happening with the Browns. We are covering all these Ohio State guys who are going to get picked. So hang loose with us a little bit next week, and then we're going to get it really into the offseason, and then we'll figure out how we're really going to dissect this team and their context where they sit in the NFL. We hope you guys like that one. Make sure you're listening every day to gotta to gotta watch the tape as part of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. So it's Orange and Brown, the other four podcasts. Make sure you listen to that and then read cleveland.com slash Browns. If you haven't been there a while, just as a favor to us, it's free. All we can add, we can't charge you. We're not charged. It's free. If you haven't been to cleveland.com slash Browns for a few days, when you turn this off and you're done listening to this, just go there and see what you think. Just go find a story that looks interesting to you. Click on it and read it. We appreciate it. For Ellis, For Scott, I'm Doug. Thanks for diving in on Gotta Watch the Tape.